0: glad you're here today. Um, I'm glad that you're joining us in person. And, uh, and uh, for those of you who are joining us online, at Church Online, we're glad you're here. This is part two in a series that we're calling Battling Mediocrity. In the introduction to the series a couple weeks ago, on the first Sunday of the year, we said that a lot of times we end up feeling like we're putting in time. And yeah, it seems like, like a new year always presents a new opportunity. But the problem is, the challenge is that I bring me into every new year, right? And you bring you into every new year. You bring you into every new opportunity, every new job, every new relationship. You bring you into every aspect of your life. And sometimes uh, what we thought was gonna be something uh, special sometimes turns out to be mediocre. And sometimes we just think, you know, I got my dream job. I mean, I landed it, but how come it isn't delivering what I had hoped for? Or I thought this is gonna be the relationship that changes everything, Why does it feel kind of flat? What happens when we don't know uh, how to solve that is we end up just putting in time. It's like we're doing time, right? And we ask ourselves, essentially, this is the question we asked ourselves a couple weeks ago, and this is where we kind of find ourselves landing, is we ask, is this as good as it gets? So as we introduced this series uh, back on January 2nd, I went back to some of our foundational and guiding statements that helped set the course for us as a church. And we talked about our mission, and we talked about our vision, and our strategy, and our values. I didn't really talk much about our beliefs, the basic tenets of the Christian faith that we believe and that we hold tightly. So, yes, we've stated those as well, those things like who we what we believe about God, what we believe about Jesus Christ and who he is, what we believe about the Holy Spirit, what we believe about salvation and the Bible and the church, and so on. We've articulated that as well. But honestly, those things are fairly easy to land on common ground, those core beliefs, those closed-hand doctrines. It's actually a pretty small list. And honestly, it's Orthodox Christianity that guides us to those core doctrines. But when it comes to a local church like this one landing on a stated mission and a clear vision and a set of core values, that's a little more nuanced and a little more difficult. But the reason we put the work in in those foundational months nearly 25 years ago and the reason we continue to put the work in to fine tune and to wrap mission, vision, strategy and values in the clearest language possible is we always want to be clear about who we are and what we're doing and why we're doing it and why we're doing it the way that we're doing it and what the culture of this church would look like as we chase our vision and carry out the mission that we believe Jesus has called us to. So we said a couple weeks ago that we knew from the very beginning that we wanted to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus. But it wasn't until we were a few years into this thing that we looked around at what we were doing and how we were doing it and why that we realized that really what was driving us is we wanted to be a church that unchurched people wanted to be a part of. Because when you really honestly think about it, If you grew up in church, the church you grew up in, if you think about it, uh, or maybe the church as you'd always known it, uh, as much as it played a significant role in, in, in shaping your faith and what you believe and how you view God and how you relate to him, perhaps that church experience wasn't something that you would feel comfortable bringing your unchurched coworkers and friends and neighbors to, and maybe you can identify with that. So what we were actually doing without even having the language around it is we were trying to create an environment and an experience where you didn't, you didn't have to have a church background in order to feel comfortable and engage and benefit from being here. So like today, this might be your first Sunday here. And here's the thing to know. Almost every Sunday, we have somebody who has their first Sunday here. And maybe you're here and you don't have a church background. And maybe you've got more questions than you have answers. And if you're being honest, maybe you even have a bias against church. Let me just say, we're glad you're here. We've been doing this with you in mind. And if you're wondering what God thinks about you, I just want to answer that real clearly and definitively. Because if you're you're wondering what the God of the universe thinks about you, I can promise you this, that he loves you. He absolutely loves you. And he came to earth for you. We talked about this over Christmas time. And he revealed himself in the person of Jesus, and he wants a relationship with you. And I hope you'll think about joining us for Starting Point when we launch this next month where we can have these conversations and you can bring your questions. So when you're part of a team that is setting the course for the direction of a church, it's absolutely essential that you get the beliefs right and that you get the the mission right and that you identify the strategy that's right for your church. That's all super important. But then we discovered that it's also really, really important to be as clear as possible, as intentional as possible about the kind of culture that we want to create. Like we want to be intentional about that because here's the thing, every church has a culture. How many of you have ever been a part of a church other than Faith Community Fellowship? Let me see. Okay, so every church has a culture. You know this to be true. Every, here's the thing, every workplace, every school, every place that people gather and interact with each other has a culture and that culture is guided by what it values and sometimes those values are unwritten most of the time but sometimes at least they're understood so but we decided to write ours down our core values and so what we're doing in this series is we're talking about just one of those values and it's the value that says excellence honors God and inspires people so here's what I want to talk about today as it relates to battling mediocrity I absolutely believe that any day of any month of any year can be the day that you turn over a new leaf and start fresh, any day. But there's something about turning the calendar into a new year that kind of emphasizes the possibilities, right, and the potential. Like it's saying like, hey, there's a new opportunity here, maybe one you've never had in your life, but it's going to require something of you. Oh yeah, there's nothing that's going to be handed to you. You got to apply yourself, but here's an opportunity, so sure, you can just like let life happen and see how it plays out. Or you can be intentional. Intentional about saying like, hey, I really, I really do want to battle this drift toward mediocrity in this area of my life or in this area of my life. So how do I do that? Where do I start? So let's talk for a minute about intentionality. And I t- I'm just going to call it taking initiative. I think that most people aren't take initiative kind of people. In fact, I agree with the experts that there are three kinds of people in the world, people who make it happen, people who watch it happen, and people who wonder what happened. You can figure out where you fit in that. But I love it around the church when people just like make things happen. And I think it's going to be more important in the future than it ever has been in the past for our church and in our church culture for people to take initiative where that is true of us as individuals and it's true of us as a body, as an organization, and as a church. And I think most people are content, like naturally just content, to just watch things happen. But when that's true, we drift towards mediocrity pretty easily. And I think most people sit back waiting for somebody somewhere to do something somehow. So it's like, why get involved? I'll just wait and see what happens. But when you're sitting around waiting for someone to do it, most of the time what you're actually waiting for is for no one to do it. Because here's the reality. When you say someone, it usually translates into no one. So like if you're waiting for someone to fix your marriage, probably nobody's going to fix it. If you're waiting for someone to make your relationship with your kids better or your relationship with your parents better, if you're just waiting for someone to make that happen, probably no one's going to do that. If you're waiting for someone to somehow get your grades up, right, so maybe you can get into a decent college, that's probably not going to happen. If you're waiting for someone to come along to fix your financial situation, not going to happen. In fact, you know, someone, somewhere, someday is the graveyard of so many dreams, both your dreams and God's dreams. And let's be honest, we've all been there because we're all like, well, not now, someday, someday. Someday, like someday we're gonna have a better environment at work. Someday we're gonna have a thriving, dynamic, healthy dynamic in our home. Someday we're gonna get financially free. Someday it's going to get better. Some someday it's someday, someday. Someday is the graveyard of far too many dreams. So here's a question. If you don't take initiative, who will? Like God's just going to swoop in and deliver on your prayer request and grant you a miracle and everything's going to change? I hate to burst your bubble, but I don't think so. Here's how we get from great to good to mediocre. Something is stuck. Something has lost momentum. Something is losing energy. And that something is starting to bother us. And we think someone should work on that something. Like there's a problem here and someone should do something about it. But we aren't doing anything about it. We aren't having the conversations we have to have. We aren't working a plan. We aren't engaging with the situation and we aren't taking any action and showing any initiative and nothing happens except the drift toward mediocrity. We could be talking about your marriage. We could be talking about your workplace. We could be talking about your finances. We could be talking about your kids and their education and their future. We could be talking about the health and the impact of this church. And when we're looking at it and saying, well, why isn't anyone addressing this? Like, when is he going to start the conversation with me? Because, like, I'm waiting for him to bring it up. I'm not bringing it up. If the day comes that this church is in decline and we're all just sitting around bemoaning all the empty seats and the cobwebs in the baptistry and the funky smell in the where the rooms that used to be filled with kids and all we can say is why doesn't someone do something? I wonder why no one is addressing the elephant in the room. I guess we'll just wait and see what happens. Then we're done. In any of those scenarios, what if the someone you're waiting for is you? Sometimes it's nice to have a plan and a strategy and have our action steps all mapped out. I love it when it works that way. That's the way I'm wired. I like the plan. I like to work the plan, get as detailed as possible, stat them away. Don't throw me any curveballs. This is great. But most of the time, life doesn't unfold that way. And we just need to get off the sidelines, take some initiative in the moment, and do something. So real quick, I want to look at um, a passage of Scripture, and this is really just a prologue to the rest of what I want to say today, but I want to share this familiar story from the Old Testament, and even if you're new to church, uh, you've never read the Bible, you probably know this story. So in 1 Samuel chapter 17, the Israelites and the Philistines are at war, and they're camped out across from each other, ready to go to battle. So 1 Samuel chapter 17, verse 1, is where I'm going to start to read this story. The Philistines now mustered their army for battle and camped between Soko in Judah and Azekah at Ephes Damim. I know that's helpful for you, right? You're like, oh, I know exactly where that is. Yeah, I was had a picnic there a couple back in the fall. What it means, though, listen, is that this is a historical event that happened in a real geographic location. That's why that's still in there. Verse 2. Samuel countered, or Saul, sorry, Saul countered by gathering his Israelite troops near the valley of Elah. So the Philistines and the Israelites faced each other on opposite hills, you get in the picture, right? With the valley between them. So you can see how it's set up. One nation here, another nation there, valley between them. Here's what happens, verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. Oh, he was over nine feet tall. So I did a little bit of research on this and gathered a little historical data and found some Artist renderings that were true to the period. So I've got. <laughs> All right, so there he is. He's a good looking dude. It's pretty. This is, uh, from what I understand, true to this time period. He would have. I don't think he smiled. I don't know. But anyway, there's Goliath. But this is nine, just over nine feet tall. Some Bibles say nine feet nine inches, so that's what we went with. He wore a bronze helmet, I think he was probably bulkier than this, I think, but anyway, he wore a bronze helmet, and his bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. All right, we get it. He's formidable. We we get that. I'm going to put Goliath down here because that's enough of that. I put a lot of work into that too. Um, Verse 8, Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across to the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. Kind of like, why are you even bothering? I mean, look at me. I am the Philistine champion. You're only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we'll be your slaves. But if I kill him, (laughs) you'll be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. This is the reason a lot of people never take any initiative. Because we look at our marriage, we look at our job, we look at the problem in our community or a problem in the world, and we're like, well, I don't have any money. I don't have any extra time. I don't have any expertise. There's so many obstacles. It's just so big. It's such a huge, complicated problem. I don't think I could possibly, I don't think there's anything I can do. I don't think there's any impact I could make. Verse 11. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified and deeply shaken. See, anytime that you are uh, trying to solve a problem that's big, if you're trying to solve it in God's way, I think you're going to end up having moments where you are terrified and deeply shaken. And if you've never been scared and shaken and terrified by a goal, then perhaps your goal has never been big enough. Like if God gives you a goal, if God gives you an ambition, if God gives you a dream, chances are it will actually terrify you and it'll shake you because you realize I'm not up to this. Like I can't do this on my own. This is the point where David shows up on the scene. Now David is the youngest son. He's a baby of the family. He's a teenager at this point. His three oldest brothers were grown men. They were in Saul's army. He's too young to be in the army at this point. But he would go back and forth bringing food and supplies to his brothers and then also tending his father's sheep back in Bethlehem. Verse 16. For 40 days, every morning and evening, the Philistine champion strutted in front of the Israelite army. Verse 23. And as he, David, was talking with his brothers, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. And David heard him shout his usual taunt to the army of Israel. So this is like he's hearing this for the first time, okay? Goliath's been doing this every day for 40 days, but this is the first time David hears it. So David asks a few questions, and somehow teenage kid gets an audience with the king. He gets an audience with King Saul, and this is what he says to the king in verse 32. Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. And of course, Saul's reaction is like, don't be ridiculous. Like, I'm not going to let you face this killing machine. That's nuts. And David starts to make his case, and he's got a strong case. He tells his stories about his battles with wild animals in his job as a shepherd, right? And he's talking about God's past faithfulness in his life. And he completely believed that God's faithfulness in the past is evidence of his faithfulness in the future. And David took initiative, and he saw the situation for what it was. He asked some questions. He had a conversation with the people he needed to talk with, and he took action. If you're waiting for somebody, someday, somewhere, somehow, to do something, maybe the someone you're waiting for is you. If you're wondering where God is, why hasn't God acted on this yet? Why hasn't God answered my prayer? Maybe the someone God is waiting for is you. There are a bunch of directions we could go with this, and I think this will probably be the case throughout this series, but as you think about taking action and taking initiative to bring about some meaningful change and to avoid this drift towards mediocrity, I want to talk specifically about our time, about how we use our time. And I want to start with this question. If I had the power to do so, if I had the power to do so, and I gave you an extra day this week, you're like, there's already an extra day, I got a holiday, that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking an eighth day this week what would you do with it? Don't answer out loud. But if you were given an extra day this week, what would you do with it? And I know this sounds a little silly because it's fantasy, but I think it's an important question because I think the way that we answer this question actually tells you a lot about what brings meaning to your life. Because you might say, well, I'd spend it with my kids, or I'd spend it away from my kids. Or I'd spend that extra day with my spouse, you know, or my significant other. I'd spend that extra day working on that project I can never find time to get to. Like, what would you spend that extra day on? Maybe you're like, well, I'm not, I don't know. Never thought about it. I don't know what I do. I don't know what I do with all that extra time. I mean, I guess I do, probably do the same thing I did today, which is the same thing I did yesterday, which is the same thing I did the day before that. It's like, like maybe your answer speaks about a lack of meaning and maybe you need to reprioritize your time. I think really the question behind the question is, how can we reprioritize our time to bring more meaning? Because here's the thing. I read this a couple weeks ago. Experts are saying, whatever experts are, but studies are saying that, that this pandemic is changing the way we see time. Like our brains are wired to remember the past and decide what we want to do with the future as we look ahead in light of how we see the past. But the challenge is the past when things were quote unquote normal is getting harder and harder to remember and the future has never been more difficult to figure out. So like add to the and then add to all the pandemic challenges, everything else like economic uncertainties, like is my job safe and inflation and gas prices and supply chain and all that. And add to that the tension of the role of government and all of this and politics and who's lying to who and this cable news and that cable news. It's a lot And with all that going on, our minds are like going, 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 and it's tiring and it's overwhelming and we lose sight of where the meaning is. Like, what's the point? Like, so how should I be using my time in light of all this? Like, how can you use your time to create more meaning? Like, how do you use the time that you have Like, how do you reprioritize it? Because you can't create more time. So how do we reprioritize our time? How do we look at it in a way where it's meaningful, where it brings satisfaction to our lives? I want to read a few verses from the book of Proverbs. Proverbs is one of the wisdom books in the Old Testament, part of the Jewish scripture written about 3,000 years ago, mostly by King Solomon, wisest person who ever lived. Here's the thing to be mindful of when you're reading a proverb. A proverb is not a promise, A proverb isn't even always a principle. A a proverb is more like a probability. So the book of Proverbs is a collection of probabilities, all right? Not necessarily promises. Like if you do this, this is likely to happen. If you do this, this is likely to happen, okay? So keep that in mind. I find this passage in Proverbs 24, I find it really interesting, and uh, it's saying something new to me than it had in the past, so I wanted to kind of bring this out. Uh, And it may not be saying what we think it's saying on the surface. Proverbs 24, verse 30 says, I walked by the field of a lazy person, the vineyard of one with no common sense. You're like, oh, I know those people. We, we know that when this part of the Bible was written, the society into which it was written was an agrarian culture, right? Like people were running farms, they were gardening, not necessarily always to sell their produce, but just so they could have something to feed their families, right? So like they didn't run to the store to get, or even to the market like, in the, to get produce, they'd have to grow it. So throughout Scripture, encompassing literally like several hundred years all the way to the teachings of Jesus, you have all these metaphors and illustrations and parables around this agrarian culture. All the sowing and reaping and planting and harvesting and weeds and chaff and wheat and rocky soil and dry soil and good soil. So all these kinds of language. So Solomon's doing that here. He's saying, I walk by the field of a lazy person, the vineyard of one with no common sense. Like, how did he know that? How did he know this is a lazy person? He says, I saw that it was overgrown with nettles. It was covered with weeds and its walls were broken down. He says that this this vineyard is in disrepair and it's it's an interesting metaphor because sometimes our lives can feel overgrown, overwhelmed. Our schedules can feel overgrown, like covered with weeds. We feel like our lives lack meaning, like they're broken down and they're not serving the purpose that they were created for. That's what Solomon's getting at here. And then he says this, and as I looked and thought about it, I learned this lesson. It's like, oh, it's a lesson you learned, Solomon. Here it is. A little extra sleep, a little more slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, you know, a little break here, a little break there, a little time spent on this thing over here. And he says, then poverty will pounce on you like a bandit and scarcity will attack you like an armed robber. The little community that I grew up in, in Nova Scotia, where and when I say little, I mean town was seven miles away and had a year-round population of 700, okay? So uh, the time that we lived there from 1975 to 1985 was nearing the end of its time as a thriving farming and fishing community. But at the time that we were growing up, we had fishermen in our church, we had farmers in our church, and I never went out fishing, uh, but I did spend a lot of time around the farms. And here's something that's true about farming. Farming isn't a job farming is a lifestyle like there's no nine to five punch the clock kind of thing like vac- vacation time is super complicated right and to be to be successful uh, you need to give it your focus like so much attention and you have to be diligent with your time with your property with your livestock with your crops with your equipment like there is no off season it's not like you plant one day and then you you take a sabbatical and wait for the harvest it's not like you plant one day and harvest the next. There's, there's a planting season. There's a time for plowing and planting. And there's a time for harvesting. And then in between, there's a time for repairing your equipment, and repairing your buildings, and planning and preparing for the next season. There's a constant sense of diligence, like constant diligence. And as a result, then, if you're diligent, you can reap a harvest and maybe feed your herd and make a living. But here's what happened with the owner of this vineyard that Solomon is talking about. That he would just take a little rest, a little break, little folded hands, a little sleep. And I don't think this is all about laziness. Because look at how we work. Even those among us who aren't in the least bit lazy can still become distracted, right? So I think a huge part of this parable, of this proverb, is about the danger of distraction, Because if you're like, if this is about laziness, it doesn't apply to me. Hey, let's talk about distraction then. Because we tend to think that the opposite of lazy is work. I'm not lazy. I'm a worker. I'm working. But I think Solomon is showing us that the opposite of lazy is diligence. So let's talk about diligence. Someone who is diligent is incremental, intentional, and persistent. The diligent person is investing in things that are important in an ongoing way. And diligence is different than productivity. Productivity is about projects and outcomes and efficiency, but diligence is something that happens along the way in an intentional way. And I think in a culture and an economy that's so focused on productivity, we forget the importance of diligence. Solomon said this in Proverbs 13, he says, A lazy person's appetite is never filled, but the desires of the diligent are fully satisfied. So diligence, like why aren't we more diligent in creating meaning with our time? Why aren't we more diligent about investing intentionally in the things that mean something? Why don't we organize our time so that we can be diligent around and invest in things that bring meaning to our lives and that matter for eternity? I think the reason is, the reality is, because we're distracted. I think you could make the case that we, are probably, we probably live in the most distracted generation of all time. Like, between text messages and phone calls, and emails, and notifications, and all the demands on our time, and the overly scheduled family life, and the go, 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 go and go, and we end up really being really distracted people. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say this, that this level of distraction is the new laziness. That distraction is what keeps us from being diligent. That distraction is what keeps us from focusing on the things that bring our lives meaning. Like we're so incredibly distracted. Like even in this environment, in this time slot on a Sunday morning, we are easily distracted by things like texts and social media notifications and like the news cycle and the endless scrolling. Like all this stuff is constantly coming at us, right? And, and distraction is the new laziness? It keeps us from being diligent. It's not a little more slumber and a little more time with our hands folded. It's like too much time on Netflix. I haven't had Netflix for a while, but I know they used to like have after so many hours. They're like, "Are you still watching?" Remember that? I hated that. And uh, in other words, what they're saying is perhaps you should get a life, right? <laughs> like. Just one more episode of The Office. It's a little too much time on Netflix. It's a little too much time texting. It's a little too much time checking to see if anybody texted us. Oh, I'm so important. Somebody must have texted me. What? Nobody texted me? My phone must be broken. Uh, Too much time scrolling social media. A little too much time on video games. A little too much time listening to the same talking heads on cable TV, getting our biases confirmed. It's distraction. Distraction is a thing that keeps us from diligence. And the result is a lack of meaning and an experience that leaves us Unsatisfied. So, why is it so hard to fight distraction? Like, why is it so hard to focus on the thing in front of us? Like, we're always battling distraction, right? We're trying to focus at work. We're trying to focus on our kids. We're trying to be fully present. We're trying to focus on our spouse across the table. Like, why is this so difficult? I want to take a few minutes and talk about our struggle with distraction. And it actually has to do with meaning. See, so what happens is we replace long-term meaning with short-term pleasure. We do. That's what humans do. We replace long-term meaning with short-term pleasure. So instead of investing in the things along the way that actually create meaning in our lives long-term, we pick that short-term dopamine hit or the short-term connection. It's a text message. It's posting on social media. It's liking. It's scrolling. We pick the thing that's quick, that's easy, that makes us feel good in the moment, like right away, instead of diligently investing in habits and practices and relationships that really bring meaning. When we talk about the question like, how do I fight distraction? We, we have to talk about these. We have to talk about it. Used to be a niche thing, like a few years ago we wouldn't talk so much about this, but like it's become like an appendage. Did you know there's a feature in your smartphone that tells you how much time you're spending on your phone every day? Did you know that? How many of you knew that? How many of you knew there was a feature there? How many of you use it regularly? How many of you hate it? Or like disable. Some of us were talking about this earlier today, like I hate that feature. (laughs) It's like, don't be telling me what I already know. Uh, Here's the thing. So if you didn't know this, okay, I'm going to help you out. If you're an iPhone user, which you all should be, you just go to your, I thought I'd get some kind of reaction there. Um, I, don't, I really don't care. Uh, but you go, to your, you go to your settings on your iPhone, scroll down to screen time, and you'll see your daily average there, which is one thing, okay? But then click on the thing that says see all activity, and you'll see exactly how much time you spend on each app. And if you're like, oh, wow, all those hours I spent on the Bible app, Probably not a problem. Then, right, then there's this feature. If you scroll down from there, you'll see a section called pickups. And that'll tell you how many times you pick up your phone in a day. So if you're an Android user, you go to Settings, then you go to, di- if I got this right, and then you go to Digital uh, well-being and Parental Controls, then you go to Menu, and then you go to Manage Your Data, and then Daily Device Usage. So I'm not saying one is more user-friendly than the other, I'm just saying one has more steps than the other. So you can figure out, and if you don't know how to do that, Google, OK? That's how I figured it out. But just Google, how do I see my screen time? If you will make yourself, listen, make yourself look at these numbers on a regular basis, I think you'll find that the amount of time you spend on your phone is a big deal. Oh, but there's more. I think the number of times we pick them up tells us something different. I think, for me, that's the number for me that I'm like, whoa, I'm so dependent on this thing. Like, I I might be addicted to it, It's never more than an arm's reach away from me. Don't get me wrong. I'm not anti-technology. I love technology. But this is an important part of the conversation about how do I fight distraction. We have to realize the power of the screens in our lives. So what do we do with the information we have? Like how can we be more diligent? How can we fight distraction? So I want to share with you what I think is one of the key ways to fighting distraction in our lives, and it's this. It's that we need to identify our meaning replacements. Identify our meaning replacements. What does that mean? We all have meaning replacements. Those things that instead of being diligent about investing in the things that contribute to long-term meaning in our lives, we choose short-term. We choose quick, we choose easy, we choose short-term over long-term, we choose distracted over diligence, we, and we need to identify those things, those habits, those people, and realize that we're engaging in meaning replacements instead of doing things that contribute to actual meaning. I don't know if you've ever been at a place in your life where you wanted to drop a few pounds and you tried meal replacements. So come on, admit it, you have. Just pop the thing, drink the thing, good to go, fully satisfied. Good for another six hours. Can I just say something? That I don't know if you're allowed to say this in church. They suck. <laughs> no, it is not a replacement. Not at all. No, it's... No. Um, been there, done that. I want to give you a few examples um, of what, how to identify our meaning replacements. Here's an example of a meaning replacement. Escape. We replace engagement with Escape. Like, we want to be engaged in our lives, like long-term, right? We, we know long-term that's a good idea. We want to be engaged in the things that are important. Engage with the people that are important in our lives. Be fully present with the people in our lives. But often we substitute escape for engagement. Escape is different from rest. Rest is a good thing. Rest is an important thing. It's like the t-shirt says, Jesus took naps, be like Jesus, right? But maybe you need to take a break from your responsibilities and go do something that feeds your soul, that refreshes you. That's the point. And that's different from escape. The idea of taking a break is to replenish you, to restore your energy. That's healthy. The unhealthy form of that isn't rest. We aren't recharging or refreshing. We're simply escaping. We're escaping to Netflix or we're escaping to video games or we're escaping to endless social media scrolling. And on the other side, we don't exactly feel energized. Because if we're honest, I think we know when we're resting and when we're escaping. We know the difference if we're being honest. So instead of engaging, we, tend to, we go to escape. Here's another one, another meaning replacement. We replace conversation with connection. Connection. You're like, wait, connection sounds like a good thing. We use the word a lot, but it doesn't really, it's not very accurately descriptive. Because we're actually replacing human conversation with a digital connection. Like conversation is happening less often as digital connection is going up. And connection is the meaning replacement. So we actually think that it means we're significant, significantly connected to people when we connect with them digitally, Okay. Facebook did a study that showed that when you post online, it makes you feel connected to people. When someone you know likes or comments, it makes you feel connected to those people. That may sound like a good thing, but on the other hand, the American Medical Journal for Preventative Medicine did a study, and they discovered that, the, that actually when you use social media consistently, when you rely on social media for the bulk of your connection with others, in the long term, you feel more lonely, in the short term, you feel connected. In the long term, you experience loneliness. So, connection has become the meaning replacement. See, conversation, that's how you build relationships with people. Like, conversation face to face is how you. Figure out social cues. Our kids like build empathy out of face-to-face interaction with other kids and with adults. Conversations face-to-face are how meaningful relationships are developed in the long term. And when we are choosing connection over conversation, yeah, it's quicker, it's faster, it's more convenient, gives you a quick hit of something. It's like like, comment, text, whatever it is. But where's the conversation in your life? And how can you build in more of it? Are you diligently investing in conversation with the people in your life, like meaningful engagement in conversation with the people in your life? Here's another meaning replacement. We choose busy over productive. You get to the end of your day and you're like, man, I don't know what I got done today, but I sure was busy. I don't know what I accomplished today, but it was a busy one. Wow. And you lost focus because you got distracted, right? By the notifications, by the text, by the email, by the urgent call, by the voicemail that I must reply to right now, by the meetings. And without even realizing it, you haven't been productive, you've just been busy. And busyness makes us feel good in the short term. Like, I must be really important. Like, I must be doing some really, really important stuff. I'm so busy. But in the long term, when you look back, the question is, what have I accomplished? Like, what was the point of all that? So here's the thing. As long as we're just going to chase after quick hits of meaning replacements, we're going to miss out on the real meaning in the long run. So how do we choose diligence over distraction so we can find and experience more meaning? Like, how do we choose diligence? I think the first step is diligently identify your meaning replacements. you got to be super intentional about this. you got to be honest about what's driving you to that replacement and and what is it? What role is it playing for you? Because as you do that, you're going to be able to make a shift to create more value in your life. So here are a couple questions. Help us do that and we'll be done. As we're going through our day, a couple questions. That, the first one is really just a prayer and it's simply, Jesus, does this line up with what you value for me? Does this activity, this thing that I'm, I find myself going to over and over again, does this line up with what you value for me see here's the thing about being a follower of jesus is like the advantage you have is that jesus wants a meaningful life for you jesus wants to bring meaning and value to your life in the gospel of john chapter 10 jesus was teaching he says my purpose is to give you a rich and satisfying life a life of satisfaction a life of meaning a life of purpose And we come to him and say, Jesus, this thing that I'm doing, this thing that I'm drawn to, this thing that I'm distracted by, this way that I'm investing so much of my time, is this actually bringing the kind of meaning that you want for my life? And then I think the second question is maybe a question to ask ourselves. Does this leave me satisfied or does it leave me empty? Like on the other side of this activity, do I feel satisfaction in my soul? Like have I moved towards meaning or do I end up kind of feeling empty. That's the thing about meaning replacements. They leave us feeling empty. Jesus has not called us to live an unsatisfied, empty life. That's not what his dream is for us. So here's the truth. If you're, if you're struggling with like, where, where do I even find meaning? Like, where should I be investing my time? Like, where do I even begin? Here's good news for you, because this isn't just a good idea. It's good news because Jesus says, if you want real meaning in your life, We can find it in him. He says, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will will never be hungry again. He's talking about spiritual hunger. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So if you're thinking, well, so what do I diligently need to spend my time on? Start with diligently building a relationship with Jesus. That's where meaning begins. Nothing else brings this kind of meaning and satisfaction. So it's a great place to begin because all your meaning will flow out of him. Diligence over distraction brings meaning to your time. And that's what I want for us. Can you imagine the impact of a church full of people who invest their time and energy into things that bring eternal meaning? Can you imagine? Like, I want us to be the kind of people who aren't distracted by everything that bombards us from every direction, but focused and diligent about being the people who not only have experienced meaning and eternal significance through a relationship with Jesus, but people who share that kind of meaning with those around us. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, we know that As we bring our lives to you and as we honestly ask this question, we say, Jesus, does this activity, does this thing have value? Like, does this bring meaning, the kind of meaning that you want for me? I know it's going to be really challenging for some of us. But as we focus maybe even on just one area of our lives, I pray that as you speak to our hearts, that we would identify those things that maybe we've leaned into to give us meaning, even if it's temporary, even if it's only for the moment, And Lord, we know that your your purpose in this process isn't to make us feel guilty or to make us feel less than. Your goal is to lead us to find freedom. And I pray that as we invest our time and our energy diligently, that we would experience life as you intended, with more freedom, more meaning, what you call a rich and satisfying life. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.